Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 42 in our series for 2018. And today's date is Friday, November the 30th. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. First, I talked to Lily Thomas, a mother of six, who transformed her family's secret recipe for infants with tummy troubles into an Australian Government Department of Health-approved product, Soothe Me Baby Tea, for her business, Giselle and I. She's a mumpreneur. What tips can she give other mums wanting to set up a business? And with Australia's budget coming on April the 2nd, ahead of the election, I spoke to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about what we can expect. But first, let's talk to Lily Thomas. Lily Thomas, you set up uh, Giselle and I four years ago. Uh, what led you to start up the business? It, uh, this was a tea that was taught to me by my mum for my son, who's almost t- who's turning 12 really soon. It's a natural tea that helps to alleviate symptoms of colic and wind. And I think I've just always wondered why there was nothing as natural as this on the market. It's always been um, a thought of mine, but up until I had my daughter about uh, four, four years ago, I had already given birth to four sons. Um, having a daughter just changed the perspective of everything. I really just looked at her and thought, life's so tough as a woman. 
and I really wanted to show her that you could have everything in life. You just need to work hard and believe in yourself because I believe that as a woman, we give up so much of our life to raise our families. We give up our work. We give up our income. We don't really get to go out as much, so we kind of give up our friends as well. So I just wanted to show her that if there's something you truly believe in, you just need to work hard and you'll be able to make whatever decision what you want in your life. And then that was pretty much the birth of Giselle and I. Right, right. And the tea you're uh, making is called Soothe Me Baby, is that right? Yeah, so the tea is called Soothe Me Baby. So once I kind of, the light bulb moment happened and I said, um, I'm going to do something for Giselle and I to show her, I so I... Um, the tea is called Soothe Me Baby, and it's a natural and organic tea that helps to relieve symptoms of colic, wind, stomach pain, nausea, bloating, indigestion, and uh, other related gastrointestinal discomforts. Now, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, mums who are looking at setting up their own businesses, uh, and you could be quite a model for them. What advice yeah. would you give mothers wanting to set up a business? It's very, very hard to... This was really a very challenging and long process there were really many highs and lows there were moments in time where I would just cry and had all this stress on my back and just want to go back to being that mum who had no responsibilities and no stresses Um, but if you truly believe in what you're doing don't give up Um, I'm very humbled by the amount of people and the people that I've met and have now built a relationship with a working business relationship with who have really been there for me to offer me support and advice do as much research as you can. I really had a top-down approach in starting this company, and I really believe that using this approach really helped me in situations where I wasn't making many mistakes because I just re- was really focused on doing as much research as I could in- to ensure that I was not missing any uh, really important roles that needed to be undertaken. But uh, I guess uh, knowing who to trust is like a game of roulette, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, There was one stage where I felt as though um, I was constantly having to call the same person, trying to follow up um, inquiries with them, and to a point where I really just felt as though I was, you know, I had had to put my pride away and just continually call and call until it got to the point where I said, hang on, I don't think they look at me as, Um, a priority and I really just had to as nice as they were I think I was just a little fish um, and I wasn't really gonna give them what they needed um, for their business it's there are times where people don't really take you seriously and I really discovered um, discovered that but be true to yourself and um, persevere because you will meet that person I the the people that I'm working with at the moment now um, the minute I met them I honestly just felt as though um, they just wanted to help me succeed and they believed in everything that I was doing and, and they just treated me like everybody else. And he actually said to me that we all start somewhere. So it was really reassuring to know. Right, right. Okay. Um, but uh, I guess it would be quite, sometimes it wouldn't be enough to think outside the box. Would that be right? Yeah, so I, with the tea, with Soothe Me Baby, um, you, you can go, um, and no disrespect to anybody who who has this um, as part of their business, but you you know, you can go and just buy the, the herbs in the bag, And but I really wanted to make sure, like, first and foremost, this tea is for babies. I wanted to stay true to the concept of how my mum taught me this tea. Um, there were people saying, why don't you add this, why don't you zhuzh it up and do this, but... 
I wanted to stay true to the whole concept of the team, how it was taught to me. First and foremost was the safety of children. And I ultimately wanted to have this tea sold in health food stores and all pharmacies Australia-wide. And in order to do that, I needed to have it listed with TGA. So another factor was I wanted to make it as simple as possible for every parent to use because God knows that when a baby is crying, the last thing you want to be doing is straining, um, boiling herbs and having to strain them. So I decided to make it as simple as possible and convenient for every mum. So all she need to do is just so there's 10 sachets in a box. You just basically need to pour 150 mils of boiling water, add the sachet, a little stir, and then you can feed your baby. So the hassle, the inconvenience has really been taken out of the tea as well. And it's um, been made with the highest safety standards. Now, for a business like yours, how important would licences and qualifications be? I guess that it really depends on where you want to see your product. If you want to sell it online, you don't really need to have any qualifications or licenses. But for me, I wasn't about wanting to just sell it online. I really wanted to help mums out there with, like there really is a gap for natural um, alternatives to feeding your um, babies and treating them with colic um, and wind symptoms. So I really wanted to have it sold in pharmacies. So I needed to have it approved with TGA, which um, was a very long process. Uh, A lot of research, you, you has to go into it. Um, but thankfully, you know, everything went really well and I was granted the certificate. So it was great. Once I received that certificate, my kids and I, I remember we were just so happy because they also have been a part of this journey with me. So it's also been wonderful that they can see their mum really pushing herself in times where I would speak to my son and say, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. And then he'd say, yes, you can, mum, you've gotten this far. And in return, I say this to them when they feel like they can't do anything. I say, look, if I had given up on what I was doing, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. So it's been really good. Uh, Quality and safety would be quite costly, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it is. But again, I love children. I have six of my own. And I give this to my own children when they're feeling um, discomforts. So it really was, I, I had to. There was no other way. For me, if it's baby, there's a lot of responsibility on my shoulders as well. So I needed to make sure that I was doing everything I could to ensure the safety of babies and the trust of mums to give this to their children. And uh, distribution would be quite critical, wouldn't it? Yeah, so ultimately I really wanted to find a partner um, to have this distributed with. Um, it's So it's very, very hard to try to find the distribution company, but I have been so lucky and blessed that I have found somebody to distribute my product um, and I found that they were really excited, genuinely humbled um, that I had taken them on board so excited to be working with me and really excited about Soothe Me Baby because they've never really seen anything like this. So uh, I could feel their passion. So that was really great. So if for any mums out there who are looking to have their product distributed, go with your gut instinct and find somebody who is really sincerely excited about your product. How big is the market for your product? So it is a very, so the baby industry, I guess, is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, Colic affects 10 to 40% of children. Uh, It is most common at six weeks. Um, It usually typically goes away at nine um, months of age, however, can last a year. But nevertheless, um, as mums, parents, dads, grandparents, when we say that our children are in any sort of pain, we really try to buy and do what we can to find what works best for them. 
But the beauty about this tea is it's also for children up to the age of 10 years old. So like the other day, my son was really complaining of um, just a lot of belly pains and he is six years old. So being able to also just give him a really herbal um, medicinal tea to help ease and promote the digestion that he was, the indigestion he was experiencing um, was really good. So, And it would be quite a niche for you, wouldn't it? I mean, there wouldn't be many would be quite in this business, would there? To tell you the truth, I've done a lot of research and I have not come across anything um, close to my products. So, and I, I think that's because the tea um, is it's an NACT and it's a herbal. So it's a traditional remedy that was taught to me by my mum. My mum's back. My mum was born in Lebanon. So um, in Lebanon, we use use this. It's one of the. Uh, it's what we use to give our kids when they're suffering um, any symptoms of colic and wind and indigestion. So it's really known um, overseas and is widely used in other parts of the world. However, it's not so much in Australia. So that's the beauty of it. It's very common for me and other people of, um, you know, who are Arabic. However, the Australian population who are Australian, with no, they, they're not, it's new to them. Now, final question, I have to ask you this. How do you cope running a business and managing <laughs> six children? <laughs> You know, I have to say it is definitely crazy. I mean, it's been really, really challenging. Um, there have been moments where I physically and emotionally am just so tired. Um, however, I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing and I truly do believe in Sue Me Baby, but I have found that I wake up of a morning, I attend to all my emails, I get the kids ready for school, I... Um, once they're at school and I come back, I just obviously check to see or follow up on any phone calls I need to make. And then I clean the house. Um, of an evening, I do a lot of work as well. So I've learned that as well. There are really not enough minutes in a day um, to try and do both. It's very, very hard. It's very, very challenging, but it's very rewarding at the same time, especially um, as I'm watching how far I'm coming and validating all the hard work I've put into this. Well, Lily Timer. Best of luck for you for the future, and uh, wonderful talking to you. Thank you very Thank much. You so much. And now let's speak to economist Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair Davidson, the government has called a budget on April the 2nd, which means that we will have an election either on in May, May the 11th, or May the 18th. Uh, the Prime Minister said it will be a budget surplus, although he has not indicated when that surplus will be. Uh, what's your view about all of this? Well, I think the first thing is that uh, we need to recognise that a budget surplus has more or less been declared, but just not when, um, every year now for the last 10 years or so. So um, a, a new budget surplus isn't really news, but I think um, they may actually intend to declare a budget surplus and people are talking about 2019-2020. So the budget may actually in principle be coming back into surplus but because we've heard so much about this budget surplus every year for the last 10 years or so, um, I, I, I kind of think the, the population is immune to the, 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 the notion or, or the declaration of yet another budget surplus. So I don't really think that's news. Um, I think what is news of course is the, um, the argument that there will be an early budget which kind of suggests that we we're looking at a, at a May election because I think the electoral period 
it has to be five weeks, the minimum period. So I would imagine a week or so for the budget and then uh, straight into the election, which, of course, makes this very, very much an election budget. And what do you think that election budget will be? Uh-huh. Well, <clears throat> I think this is the $350 billion question or so. Um, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting because I think what the budget will be is very dependent upon the interpretation of last week's Victorian election. If we take the view that the Victorian election was just a more or less state government technocrat being re-elected, um, then it'll be what they were planning on doing anyway. If, however, they take the view that there's been a fundamental shift in the Australian psyche around economics, then it is definitely going to be a big spending, big infrastructure, splash money around uh, um, uh, a budget. Um, and, and I kind of suspect that's where we're going to be. Um, they're not going to be saying this was just a fair, reasonably competent technocrat getting re-elected, first-term government getting re-elected is unsurprising. I think they're going to take the view that uh, 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 Daniel Andrews went to the electorate with big infrastructure spending, um, and they've actually started the big infrastructure spending. And I think the, uh, the, the the Commonwealth may actually take the view that this means that big spending is back on the agenda, that there may have been a change in public attitude towards public debt. Now, we've been arguing for years and years and years that people don't like lots of public debt. But I think public debt, uh, where Mr. Andrews came out and said, well, we're going to pay some, and then our children are going to pay some more, and nobody blinked, kind of suggests that, well, maybe the Commonwealth can do the same sort of stunt. So big spending, big infrastructure, and I think also attempts to wedge the Labour Party around their actual campaign promises. So I think we will see a government that will be targeting um, aged care, um, older Australians, uh, people who the Labor Party are targeting for tax increases. So it's going to be very much a very clear choice. Um, the government will roll the dice and all the money on the table. So with this rolling of the dice, where do you expect the infrastructure spending will be in the forthcoming budget? Well, they might do things such as trying for uh, power plants, um, renewables, uh, roads, uh, perhaps new rural hospitals, those sorts of things, I suspect, um, um, aged care facilities. Um, so I suspect that's where we will see a lot of the money being thrown in at uh, um, uh, coming up. Basically, it will be what can we spend. Um, we're almost, I suspect, back at shovel-ready projects from about 10 years ago, which, of course, I think, if we all remember, was actually a bit of a disaster. So, um, yeah, I, I think big spending budget. Right, 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 right. And, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, this would have an impact on issues like budget surpluses, wouldn't it? You would imagine so, um, because more or less they will say we're actually going to have a, a, a budget surplus, and I suspect the game will be there will be a budget surplus when you look at the accrual accounting system, but not so much a budget surplus when you look at the cash accounting system. Now, um, Can you explain? Uh, so, so the accrual accounting system is more or less you kind of you try to match your 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 revenues and your receipts, and you say this is our operating budget, this is our day to day spending, and this is our investment. So you kind of differentiate between long term investment and, and, and short term spending. In a cash accounting system, there's no differential. Money comes in, money goes out. 
Now, businesses, generally speaking, run on accrual accounting system. Governments have traditionally and historically run on cash accounting systems. The Commonwealth produces two sets of books, one on cash basis and one on accrual basis. I'm a firm believer that government should always run on a cash basis because government, by definition, government policy is not a going concern. We have general elections every three years, and the notion is, in principle, a government can come in and say, we are not going to do what the previous government was doing. So I'm a firm believer in cash accounting for governments, but that view is increasingly unfashionable. Um, And I suspect that's what we will see. They will say, on our day-to-day spending, we're in surplus, but we're investing all this money in building all this infrastructure, and in actual fact, this will make the economy better off in future. So that's going to be the argument we're going to see in April. So what impact will all of this have on projected budget surpluses? Well, I suspect down the track that the budget surplus will be kept very, very small, if not slightly negative. Um, The government may, in fact, start borrowing a lot more money. They'll make the argument that our borrowings are, are by international standards, fairly low. Um, This is more or less true, but bearing in mind our borrowing is still increasing, whereas everybody else's borrowing is either stabilized or decreasing. So we're in a situation whereby we're going to be going heavily into debt. Now, this does become problematic if you start taking the view where the international economy is going, and I've seen a few articles in the last few days talking about downturn internationally. Now, if we have an an international downturn while we are borrowing more, um, this is actually going to be very problematic. So this is a very much sail into the wind kind of economic strategy which the government will be following. And to to be fair to them, the the opposition are are more or less in the same boat too. So everybody's going to be spending a lot of money. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. So what's happening in the news? Well, Donald Trump has upped the ante in the escalating trade dispute with China, warning in a newspaper interview ahead of the G20 meeting in Argentina, which begins on Friday, that he expects to move ahead on the imposition of higher import tariffs on Chinese goods. This will see the existing 10% US import tariff on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods increasing to 25% from the 1st of January. And Larry Kudlow, Director of the U.S. National Economic Council said it was up to Chinese President Xi Jinping to step up and come up with new ideas to break the deadlock at Friday's G20 summit in Argentina. Economists at the Dutch lender Rabobank say the world economy could suffer badly over the next decade if a U.S.-China trade war escalates further, with as much as 2% of GDP growth lost by 2030. And analysts are now raising the R-word. After nine turbulent weeks and a correction in US stocks, what's the market saying about the economy? Now, only few see any signs that investors are bracing for a recession, but it's a word that's been coming up more. Stocks are acting in ways that have indicated slowing growth. Indeed, gains in the economy and corporate earnings are forecast to ease in 2019 from this year's torrid pace. Most analysts don't see a recession as the most obvious conclusion. And many view the sell-off as healthy after a 10-year run of gains. But with a trade war flaring and the Federal Reserve set to boost interest rates again, a handful of stock researchers are at least willing to say the possibility of recession is rising. More than $3 trillion has been lopped from US equity values since late September, a sell-off that has driven the S&P 500 down 10%. Now, economists haven't always done a great job predicting contractions. 
A 2014 study by the International Monetary Fund's Prakash Lugani found that not one of 49 recessions suffered around the world in 2009 had been predicted by the consensus of economists a year before. Lugani previously reported that only two recessions of the 1990s had been anticipated a year in advance. One way or the other, investors are acting worried. And 10 years after the US government saved it from bankruptcy, General Motors has announced it will cut up to 14,000 workers in North America and it will close five plants as it abandons many of its car models and restructures to focus more on autonomous and electric vehicles. Now, back in 2008, General Motors was teetering towards liquidation. It was in the red by a staggering $30.9 billion. Now, this was at a time when Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, AIG and Citibank were either at death's door or in the grave. And car sales were in a freefall from the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. So General Motors went to the Obama administration, which concocted a scheme that saved the company by segregating and spinning out its valuable assets, while Washington furnished billions in taxpayer funds to make sure it was viable. And now, 10 years later, General Motors has announced the reductions could amount to as much as 8% of its global workforce of 180,000 employees. The restructuring reflects the changing US and North American auto markets as manufacturers continue a dramatic shift away from cars towards SUVs and trucks. It's also a reminder that the economic expansion, which began in June 2009 and already is the second longest since modern records began in 1854, is coming to an end. While few economists anticipate a recession anytime soon, the annualised rate of auto sales has fallen by 1 million vehicles since September 2017, and data on retail sales, industrial production and housing all suggests the economy is tiring. General Motors cuts will be followed by Ford Motors, which has said it was a restructuring and will lay off an unspecified number of white-collar workers. Toyota also has discussed cutting costs, even though it's building a new assembly plant in Alabama. Fiat Chrysler Automobiles got out of small and mid-sized cars two years ago, and Ford announced plans to shed all cars but the Mustang sports car in the US in the coming years. Now, shares of General Motors, the largest automaker in the US, which sells the Chevrolet, Buick, Cadillac and GMC brands, rose nearly 6% on the news. Now, Chief Executive Mary Burra did not foresee an economic downturn. She said General Motors was making the cuts, in her words, to get in front of it while the company is strong and while the economy is strong. And European leaders formally agreed to a Brexit deal at a Brussels summit on Sunday. Now, that's the easy part for British PM Theresa May. Now, she has to get it through British Parliament. It's the first time a member country will have left the 28-nation bloc. The 27 leaders took barely half an hour to rubber stamp a 600-page treaty setting terms for Britain's withdrawal from the European Union on March 29th and a 26-page declaration outlining a future free-trading relationship. Now, as I said, it has to get through British Parliament and it has to weather Britain's political storms ahead of the official March 29 exit date with a key test date next month when the UK Parliament puts it to a vote amid violent opposition. Now, under the terms of the deal, Britain will face a $50 billion bill to pay its financial commitments on its way out the door. It will be tied to EU laws and regulations for years in some areas, and its ability to negotiate its own trade deals, a key demand from the Brexiteers, who led a successful rebellion against the established order in 2016, could be tightly limited. 
British EU negotiators will have to work out the terms of their future relationship and although a 36-page declaration also approved on Sunday set out some of the guidelines, much remains unresolved. That includes Britain's freedom to control large parts of its own economy. Even the vague aspirations, however, are likely to disappoint British business interests. For example, while May has long sought to replicate the frictionless trade that exists today between members of the European Union, a post-Brexit Britain will face separate markets and distinct legal orders according to the political declaration while aligning with EU rules. London's financial centres, one of the largest in the world, will also see its access to Europe diminished when it surrenders its passport rights to move money. What will happen to the withdrawal agreement if it's voted down by the British Parliament is unclear. Britain could even rerun their referendum, even though few analysts believe this is realistic. Brexiteers want negotiators to return to Brussels to amend the deal, but European leaders have said they have little room to improvement and there's nothing more to talk about. That's it, they say. May's leadership is also in doubt, with ex-Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon saying the proposed EU agreement was the worst of all worlds, in his words, and the PM's future, in his words, was up to colleagues. And Australians are all but assured that they will head to the polls for a federal election in May, with the Prime Minister announcing he will deliver a budget in April. Scott Morrison said the budget will be on April the 2nd, 2019, and Australians will go to the polls after that. As well as handing down the budget a month early, Mr Morrison and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said mid-year economic and fiscal outlook will be released on December the 17th. And that happens to be right in the middle of Labor's national conference. And in the lead-up to the election, former Deputy Liberal leader Julie Bishop has called on the Morrison government to do a deal with Labor on the National Energy Guarantee, saying the coalition's business allies want it and it would ensure a stable investment climate for the industry. As the Federal Liberal Party bickered following the rout of its Victorian counterpart Saturday's state election, Ms Bishop joined calls by colleagues for the coalition to adopt a serious policy stance towards climate change or suffer a similar fate federally. And with negative gearing shaping up as an election issue, an updated report from the Progressive McKell Institute says that negative gearing reform is more important now than it was when the policy was first adopted. Now, in this updated report, the second report, the McKell Institute argues that housing is less affordable now than it was during the height of the boom. For example, when the original report was published in 2015, the median house price in Sydney was $880,000, but despite the decline in 2018, it remains at $945,000. At the same time, housing cost-to-income ratios have also got worse in all capital cities except Perth and Darwin. In 2015, the median Sydney house price was 16.9 times median income. Today, it is 17.2 times the median income, according to the report. And the report says on most measures, housing is less affordable now in Sydney and other capitals than it was in 2015. And Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe says we're moving to a cashless society. Speaking at the 2018 Australian Payment Summit, Dr Lowe said a turning point has been reached. He says it's now easier to conceive of a world where banknotes are used for relatively few payments. He says cash will become a niche payment instrument. And the federal court has approved nine entertainments takeover of Fairfax, scuttling a minor shareholder's last-minute attempt to derail the deal. 
The legal team for Domain's former chief executive, Anthony Catalano, argued the Fairfax board did not give its shareholders an opportunity to consider his competing offer at last week's annual general meeting, and that it should have been postponed. It was also argued that Fairfax shareholders were being shortchanged by $600 million because the share price of nine had significantly fallen since the deal was announced in July. Justice Gleeson said reasons for her decision will be published in due course. Catalano's legal team said it may, he may appeal the decision. Now, the new entity, which will simply be called Nine, will own the Free-to-Air Nine Network, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, the Australian Financial Review, a majority stake in Domain, streaming service Stan, and a 54.5% stake in radio network Macquarie Media. It will be led by Hugh Marks and Peter Costello, the Chief Executive and Chairman of Nine Entertainment. Nine shareholders are set to own 51.1% of the combined company, and Fairfax shareholders will have the remaining 48.9% stake. An online portfolio retailer, Kogan.com, has just closed a deal with Citi to create a Kogan Money credit card. Details about the card, including interest rates, will be released when it's launched in 2019. Now, Kogan.com says the card will be competitively priced. It says the card will offer unique and compelling loyalty incentives to shop on Kogan.com and elsewhere. City will issue the card. It will provide system infrastructure, servicing, back office processing, regulatory and compliance oversight, and branded digital platforms. Kogan.com will market and distribute the card and provide loyalty fulfilment. Now, Kogan.com has a portfolio that includes Kogan Retail, Kogan Marketplace, Kogan Mobile, Kogan Internet, Kogan Insurance, Kogan Health, and Kogan Travel, as well as pet and life insurance. It's also moved into white goods, competing with retail giants like Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi. And failed budget menswear retailing giant Roger David will shut all 57 stores this Sunday. And that will end 76 years of trading for a business that was once the official outfitter for the Australian cricket team, led by John Bradman. Roger David was bought unstuck by the onslaught of international fast fashion retailers H&M and Uniqlo, as well as fierce competition from online retailers and high rental costs for bricks and mortar. It was forced into administration on October the 18th. The administrators, called Amintha, could not find a buyer so they'll pull the shutters down on December the 2nd. And National Australia Bank has denied it was trying to get out of paying more money to customers charged for advice they never receive. Now, it described the practice as wrong, but not dishonest. In his appearance before the Royal Commission, NAB CEO Andrew Thorburn admitted the bank had taken too long to compensate customers after he'd argued with a corporate regulator about the methodology for the remediation. Now, Mr Thorburn said NAB had acted in good faith but he said it did the wrong thing. However, he did not accept that keeping fees for a service the bank did not provide was dishonest. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong, he said. Dishonesty would go to the intent, and I don't feel it was dishonest in that respect. He said staff failed to connect the dots when customers transferred to NAB's MLC direct business, and customers continued to be charged ongoing fees when they no longer had an advisor. He said the first the bank knew about the problem was when customers complained in 2015. Now, he said it was just an operational error and oversight. The Commission also heard that NAB decided not to cut executives' bonuses for the 2016 financial year, despite the mounting fees-for-no-service scandal, alongside of other problems. Now, the board was initially unhappy with the Chief Risk Officer and Chief Executive Andrew Thorburn's recommendations to keep the bonus pool untouched. 
but it eventually conceded on the condition that a strong message about risk management be sent to all staff. Now, bonuses were cut this year, but NAB Chairman Ken Henry was grilled about why action was not taken sooner, and Dr Henry, the former Treasury Secretary, said directors' duties to shareholders needed to be extended to the community. That's right. The bank's directors have responsibility not only to shareholders, but to the community, according to Ken Henry. And in another bombshell dropped at the Royal Commission, AMP Chief Executive Mike Wilkins admitted the embattled company had launched an internal investigation to review fees and services charged to corporate super clients. He said the fees for no service issue might cost the bank up to $1.2 billion and take nine years to complete. And Building Products Group, CSR, has sold its Viridian Glass business to private equity firm Crescent Capital Partners for $155 million, ending its disastrous move into glass manufacturing, which cost shareholders more than $1 billion over the past 10 years. Now, strategically, it's an important move for the company because it frees up CSR Managing Director Rob Sindel to try and cut costs elsewhere in the business at a time when the housing downturn is worsening. Now, this downturn has seen CSR shares tumbling 41% since June. And the market has also punished other building companies like Borel, James Hardy and Fletcher Building. And finally, sales at Harvey Norman's franchise stores in Australia slipped 1.3% because of the downturn in the housing market. It dented demand for furniture and appliances. And same-source sales edged down 0.2%. And that's an indication of how the downturn in the housing market is affecting everyone else. And that's it for this week. And next week, I have a terrific interview with Steve Hoy, the CEO of the Anosi Foundation, an open source, not-for-profit blockchain-based energy operating system that seeks to make the green energy space more efficient and transparent for communities, small businesses and startups. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ or on Facebook. Take care, be good to one another, and I'm looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.